So we're in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. And this week we want to look at verses 3 through 6. And we're taking um, a slower approach because one, I want to make sure that we have time to think through these things adequately and also because I want you to I want you to be able to think about these in short segments right now. There is a lot to contend with um, in these chapters that we've come to and so I want us just to slow down and take a little chunk at a time and think about these images that are being given to us, these things that are being described. One of the things that we've learned uh, in going through the Revelation is that um, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand the details if we don't have a good working knowledge of the whole. Um, Understanding the big picture helps us to then get down into the weeds and think about how do the pieces and parts uh, fit together. It's, It's sort of like putting together a piece of furniture um, you can have all of the all of the boards and all of the nuts and bolts and all of the uh, all the pieces of the of the piece laid out before you in a box and they can be labeled A and B and C and steps one two and three. But if you don't know what you're trying to achieve at the end, then uh, it's just more difficult. And so, uh, what we know about this book is that it comes with blessing. It's it brings reward and promise of life and hope for those who read it and those who do what's commanded here. Those who live out the teachings of the book. And what we've seen so far is just really a big discussion about the ordinary course of human history. We are fast approaching the day of the Lord in the book. We're going to come to the time uh, when we think about what happens when Jesus comes again, what accompanies those things. But so far, we're still attending to issues of the ordinary course of human history. And so you might think about it like this, that in the story of of the world, we are maybe a conservative estimate, I think, a couple, about 2,000 years past the life, the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe there was about 4,000 years of human history prior to that. And so how much to go, we don't know. And yet, if you think about that from the time of Jesus's resurrection till now, it's been about 2,000 years um, in fact, if you want to know specifically, it's been uh, right around 1,996 years since uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if you say, well, how do you know that? Then watch the passion passages that our pastors are putting out week by week. You'll see more about that in Friday's email. Uh, but we're in this time frame where we know about, about 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ How long till his return? We don't know. And yet we're waiting, longing for that to happen. The New Testament presents these days that we live in between the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the final coming of the Lord Jesus as the last days. Everything that we live in, everything that was a part of the early church, everything that was a part of the time of the apostles, it's all the last days. Sometimes we will say, well, we live in the last days. We do. But we live in the last days in the same way that all Christian people have lived in the last days. And so in these last days, there are things that are going on. One of the things that is happening in these last days that the Apostle Paul lived in and that you and I live in, one of the things that's happening in these last days is that the church is bearing witness to the gospel, right? One of our commissions from the Lord Jesus himself is to go and preach the gospel into all the world. In fact, we know the end won't come until that occurs. One of our parts, one of the parts of our mission is to make disciples of all nations. That's one of the things that we're doing in this present age as witnesses of Jesus. Also in this last days, one of the things that is happening is that the church is experiencing uh, the onslaught of attack from the unbelieving world. Uh, The unbelieving world is blinded in their minds to the truth of the gospel. They don't believe. They don't understand. they They don't acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ and his salvation for the world. And because of that, they respond to the gospel 
with hostility. They look at those who preach the message of Jesus Christ with hatred in their hearts. And sometimes that hatred is expressed in attack, physical attack, not just spiritual or verbal attack. It's also, it's also physical attack. And so in these last days, the church is witnessing to Jesus Christ, but the church is also witnessing unto death. There are people who are losing their lives on account of the gospel. The other thing that is going on in these last days, aside from the church witnessing to Jesus and aside from the world responding with, with hatred and, and with hostility, there is also the Spirit's work of preserving his people. The Holy Spirit of God has come into the world and fallen upon the church and filled the church and keeps the church so that one day we might be presented blameless in God's presence. The Spirit seals and the Spirit, the Spirit secures us so that one day, when at the end of days, we come into God's presence fully forever. So in these last days, God is, God is working out his will in the world, and it's the final push of gospel advancement where the church is witnessing. The world's responding to that with hostility, and in the middle of that, the Spirit is preserving his people. But one day, the last day will come. And as we get closer to the last day, to the great and terrible day of the Lord, as the prophet Joel calls it, as we get closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the intensity of the church's mission and the intensity of the world's hostility will increase. And it will increase to the point that we set up a real battle. Who is going to win? Who's going to be in control? Who will persevere? We'll see the difficulty of the world we live in increase as God begins to pour out judgment in increasing measure upon the earth, upon the people who, un, who are unbelieving, those who are lost in their sin. And so what we've seen in the Revelation are signs of that. Remember that in chapter 6, as we looked at the sealed judgments, a fourth of the earth is affected. And, and there we talked about just the, the ordinary things of life, warfare and economic decline. And, and, and what happens when people are, are faithful to the gospel and yet they're met with great hostility. They lose their lives on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 8 and 9, we saw the trumpet judgments, and there you see a third of the earth affected, that as we get closer to the end, as we get closer to the return of the Lord Jesus, there's going to be greater hostility from the world, but there's also going to be greater judgment from God poured out. God will send measured wrath, measured judgment, measured condemnation upon the world to try to turn the hearts of the wicked to the right, to appeal to those who are unbelieving to to give their lives to Christ, but they will go on in their unbelief, we're told. Continuing to worship idols. So we're getting closer. And having seen the seal judgments and having seen the trumpet judgments, John is given this interlude of chapter 10 and chapter 11 just like he was given in chapter 7 to remind the people of God that while we face great difficulty in these last days, while we face the hostility and hatred of the world to the gospel and those who proclaim the gospel, while even we may be called to give our lives on account of our faith, we do not have to worry that we would lose our body because we who are sealed by Jesus Christ, we who have been counted among his people, we who have been measured and secured in his presence, we will not lose our souls. And so Revelation chapter 11 builds upon this idea that God is securing his people because in chapter 11 in verses 1 and 2, we saw John invited into the work of this vision. This vision of a temple and an altar and worshipers and a holy city, this vision of witnesses and prophets and lampstands and olive trees, this vision of a beast and an attack and a slaughter and a resurrection, this witness that in these last days, 
The church is pushing forward in its mission and the world is responding with attack and the spirit of God is at work keeping his people until the day that Jesus comes again. So I want us to read together verses three through six and then begin to think about these witnesses to the world. God himself is talking to John in chapter 11. And so the Lord says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, This is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We're in the middle of an interlude John has been provided an opportunity to participate in the vision so that he knows and can communicate to his readers, to you, to me, the comfort that God provides to those who belong to him by faith. Comfort that prevails over the terror and trouble that will come in the last days. John was told in verses 1 and 2 to take a measuring rod and measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. You recall from last week that we said these are symbols of the people of God. All those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. The measuring is a means of demonstrating God's knowledge of his people God is intimately acquainted with them, with you, with me. And God is able to protect their souls even as they endure physical trampling by the Gentiles. On the outside of the temple was the court of the Gentiles and John was told, don't measure that. It's given over to the nations, to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were a symbol of unbelief, of idolatry, of rebellion against the one true God. And so for God to say that the outer court of the temple was not to be measured for it was given over and then to say that the holy city would be trampled was a way of saying that the unbelieving would continue their work, that those who are lost in their sin would continue to be hostile to the gospel's advancement and those who advanced it. The warning that we, the people of God, will face in this life, the attack of the unbelieving world prompts us to settle in our hearts that by faith we belong to the Lord. And Paul wrote in Romans 14 and verse 8 that if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So as long as we live, we, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord when we walk unscathed by the world's torment and trouble. But we also belong to the Lord when our lives are barraged by the sufferings and sorrows of a fallen world, whether those come as ordinary trials or as spiritual attacks. Understanding that God will not only allow but also assign trials to our lives to prove the genuineness of our faith And the grip of his hand upon us is essential to not only enduring well, but also to understanding the word rightly. God seals us. He counts us. He measures us to reassure us that we belong to him, that we have a place in his presence, that we will not lose our lives eternally, even if we lose them in this world. With this assurance, we face the joys and sorrows of the days between the first coming of Jesus and his final coming, a time that we know is the last days. 
The final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that will accompany and be affected by His appearing are referred to collectively in Scripture as the day of the Lord. It occurred to me this week that sometimes I will refer to the great and terrible day of the Lord and perhaps we've not ever defined what that is a reference to. And so I went looking through the book trying to see how is this terminology used? What does, what does the word of the Lord mean when it refers to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the time of God's final coming to earth in his son Jesus Christ? So here's what I found. In the time of the prophets, God warned his people of what the day of the Lord would be like. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6 We learn it's a day of destruction. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 46 teaches us that it is a day of vengeance. Ezekiel teaches us that it is a day of doom for the nations. The prophet Joel teaches us that it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day great and terrible. Amos teaches us that it is a day of darkness and not of light. And in fact, the prophet Amos says, why would anyone want the day of the Lord to come? The prophet Joel and Ezekiel and Obadiah and Zephaniah, they all said that the day of the Lord was near and hastening. And Zephaniah teaches us that the day of the Lord, it not only is dark, it also sounds bitter. In the age of the church, the apostles built upon the themes of the prophets and the teachings of Jesus himself as they taught that the day of the Lord would follow the outpouring of the Spirit. Prophesied by Joel, recorded in the book of Acts. That it would also follow the mystery of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. And the day of the Lord would come suddenly like a thief in the night That's not unique to Paul's theology. Peter talked about it as well in 2 Peter chapter 3. And the day of the Lord would bring judgment to the unbelieving, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. It was the day of the Lord that served as a prompting for church discipline when Paul, on his apostolic authority, instructed the Corinthian believers that when they came together, they were to dismiss and hand over to Satan the one who was accused and guilty of gross sexual immorality. The reason being that if Satan should have his body, at least the spirit might have his soul at the great day of the Lord. And Peter also taught us that the day of the Lord would usher in the new heavens and the new earth. What John describes in chapter 11 regards the life of the people of God between the first coming of Jesus and his final coming. And as God's people endure the last days and wait for the day of the Lord, their prophetic proclamation of the gospel will continually prompt the attack of this world, which will regularly result in the loss of their earthly lives. And yet the church will persevere corporately, even as she is preserved individually. God is the one speaking in chapter 11. He's already told John to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. And now God tells John that he will grant authority to his two witnesses. There are two ways to understand this phrase, grant authority. In the English Standard, it says those words exactly. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. That's similar to what the King James says. The NIV has another rendering that, that talks about the, the gift of power, the gift of witnesses. God will give, he will grant witnesses themselves. When the English Standard and the King James, several other translations, talk about the granting of power or authority, they're talking about God giving the witnesses a gift, an ability, an empowerment. When the NIV says that God actually gives the witnesses themselves, he's saying that it's not that God gives the witnesses a gift, it's that God gives the gift of witnesses. 
When you look at the Greek, because that's really what matters, not what the English translations say. Let's go back to the Greek that stands behind it. There are not two words for grant authority. There's just one word. It's the word doso in Greek. And it means to grant, to give, to place, or to appoint. So I think the better rendering is what the NIV says. It would be something like this, that God is telling John, I will grant witnesses. I will give witnesses. I will appoint witnesses. Not just that he would empower them, but that he would actually place them. God would put witnesses before the world to do his work. God is going to place in and give to the world witnesses of his name. The Lord told John that he would give two witnesses. At first glance, that might seem awfully simple to understand. In fact, some of you will be familiar uh, with the concept of these two witnesses uh, that things like the series Left Behind popularized. And so you may think of two witnesses who one day appear on a global stage and bear witness and they're televised at the time of their demise and when they're destroyed by the beast. Maybe it seems awfully simple. But we quickly figure out that it's not simple. John tells us that these two witnesses have other aliases. They're known by other terms. In chapter 11 and verse 4, John tells us that the two witnesses are two olive trees. And they are two lampstands. And in verse 10, he says they are two prophets. These aliases are sufficient reason to question whether the two witnesses are two actual individual people or perhaps a symbol of something else. When you remember that John is using a particular genre of writing called apocalyptic, and that apocalyptic writing is not literal, it is figurative, it deals regularly in the symbolic, using signs and illustrations and allusions to describe real things in a figurative way, then you're justified in saying, what might John be pointing us to? What might these two witnesses represent, be symbolic of? It's not to say that they don't represent something real. It's just to acknowledge that they are figurative language of something that's real. I've read more in my prep for this class than I have in a long, long time, maybe ever. And I read regularly about 12 to 15 commentaries on each of these passages to prep for this time. And so for thinking through these things, I could go to a number of theologians, but the one that I'll rely on here is the theologian Gregory Beale. He's a professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Texas. And Gregory Beale writes that the two witnesses represent the whole community of faith whose primary function is to be a prophetic witness. And then he outlines six reasons that we should understand the witnesses, trees, lampstands, prophets, as referring to the whole people of God. And so I want to walk through these six reasons with you. The first is this. Bill would say that the two witnesses represent the whole people of God because they are called two lampstands in verse 4 which should be identified as the churches. He notes that in the Jewish rabbinical interpretation of Zechariah 4, the lampstand was seen as a symbol for all of Israel. But more important is that explicit identification of the lampstands in Revelation 1 and verse 20 means that they are churches, the whole church. It's unlikely, Beale writes, that the lampstands are different here than in chapter 1. And just as the lampstands are identified as a, kingdom of, as a kingdom and priest, as the entire church is in chapter 5 and verse 10, so here in chapter 11 and verse 4 is the association of the witnesses with kingly and priestly functions. I'll pause here just to remind us that one of the 
principles of biblical interpretation, particularly related to apocalyptic language, is that when John tells us what something means, we should let that meaning stand until we're given a reason to understand it any differently. So for John to say that the two witnesses are two olive trees, are two lampstands, are two prophets, and for us to know that John has told us that lampstands are churches should indicate that what John means here is a symbol, that what God is saying is that John, the two witnesses, are lampstands representative of my whole people, of all the church. Beale offers a second reason that we should see it this way. He notes that in verse 7 of chapter 11, the beast will make war with them, those are the witnesses, and overcome them. This is based on Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, where the last evil kingdom prophesied by Daniel persecutes not an individual, but the entire nation of Israel. So if the beast that is behind the beast in Revelation chapter 11, the beast of Daniel's vision, was attacking the whole people of God, the nation of Israel, then it stands to reason that this beast in chapter 11 is attacking the whole people of God, Jews and Gentiles redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. Bill's third reason for seeing this as representative of the whole church, the whole people of God, is this. He says the corporate interpretation, seeing this as God's whole people, is pointed to by the statement in verses 9 through 13 that the entire world of unbelievers will see the defeat and resurrection of the witnesses. When we press forward in this chapter, we see in chapters three, in chapter 11, verses 3 through 6, witnesses to the world. In chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, witnesses unto death. And then in verses 13... Oh, excuse me, verses 11 through 13, you see witnesses unto life. What's happening here is that these two witnesses are depicted as fulfilling their mission, being slaughtered on account of their faith, and then rising after three and a half days. And Beale reminds us that in John's vision, these two witnesses raised from death to life are seen by the whole world. This means, he says, that the witnesses are visible throughout the earth. Now, I'm going to pause in our listing because if you grew up with the dispensational view of these things, then one of the things that you have probably heard or thought about or maybe believed or believe now is that the vision, the witness of these two witnesses dying and rising could only happen in our last days, in the time in which we live, because of the advent of satellite television. Have y'all heard this? Anybody? If you ever watched Hal Lindsey, if you've watched John Hagee, if you've seen uh, maybe Jimmy DeYoung talk about these things, one of the theories that they popularize is that uh, this can only be fulfilled in our current era because of the advent of satellite television where we can literally see some event like this happening somewhere else in the world in real time. Here's the difficulty with that. The difficulty with that is that this cannot mean now what it could not mean originally. It can have many applications, but the meaning is singular. That's true for the entirety of Scripture. When we look at the book, remember we talked about this last week, we're trying to get to the authorial intent. What did the writer, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, using the language available, intend for us to understand? What was the meaning? And you and I don't decide what that meaning is. We learn that meaning through careful study of the language, careful study of the context, careful study of the background of Scripture, and we try to determine what is going on here through the aid of the Holy Spirit. If it cannot mean now what it could not have meant then, then the idea that this is fulfilled through satellite television is out. And instead, we have to think about what could John have meant. 
Well, if John describes the entirety of the world seeing the martyrdom and then rising of these two witnesses, then perhaps what John is meaning is that the whole church scattered through the whole world experiencing the attack and onslaught of the beast and his forces and dying for the cause of Christ is something that the entirety of the world could see. Maybe that's what John is pointing us to. Beale offers a fourth reason that we should see these two witnesses as representing the whole people of God. He says that the two witnesses prophesy for three and a half years what he calls um, one, uh, excuse me, 1,260 days, the same length of time that the holy city in chapter 11, the woman in chapter 12, and those tabernacling in heaven in chapter 13, the same length of time that all of those are to be oppressed. If these texts, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, speak of the persecution of a community, then it's plausible to identify the two witnesses in the same way. Bill says if the image of an individual woman signifies the community of faith existing during the three and a half years, then the image of two individual prophets might also represent the same reality during the same period. And then he says, if it's correct to see chapter 11 and verse 3 as continuing what is written in the two verses before it, then the two witnesses are another depiction of the true Israel, the holy city, the whole people of God during its time of distress. He tells us that the period of three and a half years is based on Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, chapter 12 and verses 7 and 11, and perhaps Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 all of which prophesy a time of tribulation for Israel as a community, as a whole. He says here the figurative em emphasis is on the true covenant community experiencing tribulation without respect to how long that tribulation lasts in literal time. The fifth reason that Gregory Beale says we should see these two witnesses as representative of the whole people of God is that in the book, in, in the Revelation, the entire community of believers is identified as the source of testimony, or of witness to Jesus Christ. And we see that in chapter 6 and verse 9, chapter 12, verses 11 and 17, chapter 19 and verse 10, and chapter 20 and verse 4. And then finally, he says that one of the hints that these two prophets are not two individuals comes from observing the powers that they possess powers of both Moses and Elijah. And Gregory Beale says, as so many other theologians note, that both the powers of Moses and Elijah are attributed to both witnesses equally, not divided among them. They are identical prophetical twins. So God tells John to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there is a sign of his protection over and presence with his people. God will cause his own, his people, to endure to the end. However, God tells John that his people face the attack of this world, signified by the trampling of the holy city for 42 months. This trampling will come because God will, in that same time period, noted in chapter 11 and verse 3 as 1,260 days, place his witnesses in the world to prophesy. The two witnesses are all the people of God collectively, yet they're spoken of as two witnesses as a reference to the Old Testament law regarding the establishment of the truth. Jesus taught us that in John chapter 8 and verse 17. We should note that in John's day, the word martyrion didn't mean martyr in our modern sense. When you and I think of a martyr, we think of one who dies on account of what they believe. But in the first century, the word martyr was simply the word witness. And what it was implying was one who saw or heard something. So God is placing before the unbelieving world his covenant community, his entire people, all those who have seen the Lord Jesus and heard his gospel. And God tells John, 
that those who've seen the Lord Jesus and those who've heard his message will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. One of the most important things that applies not only to our study of the Revelation, but also to our study of particularly the Old Testament, is to understand what the work of a prophet is. When we look back at the writings of the major and minor prophets and think about what their ministries look like, we learn two things about a prophet. That prophets foretell future events and they foretell present realities. Often we think about a prophet as foretelling something, talking about something that hasn't happened yet but will happen in the future, something that is down the road and far removed from us. And we think about prophecy being fulfilled as as something that has been predicted and then happens, comes to pass. And so it's almost, as my New Testament professor, uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington said, it's almost as if we see Isaiah as the quarterback releasing the ball and Matthew as the wide receiver catching the pass. We think about the prophecy being fulfilled, coming to pass, being accomplished. Certainly that's a part of what happens in the Word. God gives to his prophets insight, understanding of what will be and is not yet. And they write about these things without fulfillment, knowing that God will accomplish them in his time. But prophets also foretell. They tell the truth. They talk about what is, what needs to be understood, what God's people in the world presently are undergoing, and how they should respond to what God would do for them through his redemptive act. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ does both. We foretell and we foretell in the power of the Holy Spirit. Since the first coming of the Lord Jesus until the final coming of the Lord Jesus, the church is the collective witness of God in the world. We announce the impending day of judgment and the wrath of God that will be poured out on sinners. Even as we plead with the unbelieving to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth speaks to the manner in which the church of the Lord Jesus does her work. We do not prophesy in pride, but in pain. The pain of seeing God's name mocked by sinners. The pain of seeing sinners played by the evil one. The pain of knowing the judgment that awaits those who remain in their sin. John says in verse 4 that these two witnesses are two olive trees. As Beale noted, there's a reference here to the vision of Zechariah chapter 4 where the two olive trees are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, Zechariah says in verse 4 of chapter 4. The anointed ones in Zechariah's vision were Joshua, the high priest of chapter 3, and Zerubbabel, the Jewish governor under the Persian king Darius of chapter 4. And those two olive trees in Zechariah's vision flanked one lampstand. They were connected to it. It was a way of saying that the two olive trees, they fuel the lamp, they supply the They supply the oil. They ensure that the lampstand continues to burn. John knows this vision. He's relating to it as God himself is giving him some understanding about what is to come. But instead of envisioning one lampstand, John says, God tells him him there are two. Two lampstands that are the two trees, that are the two witnesses, that are the two prophets. Two, not to dispute with Zechariah's vision. Two, to make sure that we understand that these are the same. The same as the witnesses, the same as the trees, the same as the prophets. 
What God is telling John here is that in the face of unbelieving opposition, all of God's people will bear witness to what they have learned and heard and received and seen, as Paul writes in chapter 4 of Philippians. That their words being a prophetic declaration to the nations of those things that are and those things that are to take place, John says in chapter 1 and verse 19. And that they will be continually fueled as light to those who walk in the darkness. John is told that anyone who would harm the prophesying, illuminating witnesses is doomed to be killed by the fire that pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. Of course, this is figurative. It's symbolic. God's people are not literally fire breathers. But we do carry a message that singes and sears. A message that when it is not received, condemns. The message of the Lord and His church, it either saves or it destroys. Those who reject the message and attack the messengers of Jesus Christ seal their future condemnation and will one day succumb to the wrath of Almighty God. The Lord tells John that his witnesses are like Elijah, having the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they collectively are like Moses, having the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Recall that Bill argued that the witnesses are the whole people of God on the basis of these abilities of Elijah and Moses being applied to both witnesses together. One witness is not Elijah and the other Moses. They are both Elijah. They are both Moses. The whole people of God function with prophetic authority. Recall what Jesus taught Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Of course, you remember the part that we quote so often, that Jesus said that, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But do you recall what Jesus went on to say? That whatever you bind on earth, is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That is a reminder to us that the church's authority, it carries eternal consequences. As the whole people of God proclaim the truth of the gospel and advance the mission of Jesus Christ, like the prophets of old, we participate in calling down the judgment of God on those who reject the authoritative message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So there are two witnesses. And the two witnesses are two olive trees. And the two witnesses that are two olive trees are two lampstands. And the two witnesses that are two lampstands, that are two olive trees, are two prophets. And the symbolism points us to the reality that it's not just two individuals who are authorized, sent, placed, appointed, granted, given to the world. It's the whole people of God. It's all those who are in Jesus Christ. It's those who are sealed by the Spirit and those who are numbered among the unnumbered people of God. And it's those who are measured among God's people and in God's presence. The witnesses are the church, all God's people. And for as long as God gives them, they bear witness to his truth, not just in a passive manner, but in a prophetic manner. They bear witness even as the attack of unbelievers comes their way. They bear witness even as they are forced to reckon with those who would take their lives. They bear witness for as long as God would give them, a time that God has 
known from before the beginning of time and that he will bring to pass. They are witnesses to the world. We are witnesses to the world. So I want us to think very quickly about four points of application that we draw from these verses. Number one, that the witnesses are given to the world by God underscores that we have a mission right where we are. I know we often think about the world as a mission field. Today I had a pastoral interview with someone and wanting to join our congregation and sometimes people hear that word and they say, is it kind of a pass-fail thing? Yeah, but Jesus is the one who causes you to pass, not the pastor. Just make that clear. This dear sister who came to say, I I love Jesus. I love his church. I want to belong to Elkdale. Said, do you think about Selma as a mission field? And I said, oh, yeah. And I've thought that about every other place that I served. Because wherever it is, brothers and sisters, that God has placed us, He's placed us to be his witnesses, to talk about what we've learned and received and heard and seen. We're the people that have been sent, commissioned, placed, given, granted to our city. We have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel and to call the people of our city to faith. Because God has given you and me to Selma. Second thing I take away from this is that the the witnesses prophesy and because they prophesy and are prophets, it's a reminder that our words carry weight. You and I have been given an authoritative message for the world And we have a great responsibility to God. Like the prophet Ezekiel, we've been placed as watchmen on the wall of the world, on the wall of Selma. We see that judgment is coming. We know that salvation is possible. We must sound the alarm lest there should be blood on our hands. Number three... The fact that the days of our witnessing are numbered, 1,260, teaches us that the time is short. We do not know when the Son of Man will come again, but the Father does. The days are counted and counting down. Time is fleeting. There's no need, church, for us to act in an unruly manner, but there's every need for us to act in an urgent one. I was telling the, we had a staff retreat this week and it was a great time to get away and think and plan and pray. And I was telling the gang yesterday that one of the things I've been reminded of in this, in this study of Revelation is the need for us just to be faithful, steady at the task. Because if we're not careful, we allow our thinking about the great day of the Lord and the return of the Lord Jesus and the impending judgment that's coming to the world, we allow that to get us so stirred up that we begin to act in an unruly way. We, we begin not to think about how we do something. We just think about what it is that we're to do. Think about the story I heard years ago of a famous athlete in our state. I won't mention his name, but, but he had become a believer at an early age and he went to school convinced that everybody needed to become a believer in Jesus. Well, that was a good mission, but his methodology was bad because he'd go up to people on the playground at school and say, you need to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. And when they said no, he said, if you don't, I'm going to punch you in the face. That's unruliness, not just urgency. we got to be careful. There ought to be urgency. We ought to recognize that we've been given just a little time. The days are numbered. The hours and time is fleeting. 
The moments are passing. We must be faithful, steady up to task, doing the work that God's given us to do. We also have to be careful we don't do it in a way that detracts from the mission. Then one last thing. The fact that the witnesses are lampstands and olive trees signals that we do not lack the power to fulfill our purpose. God has equipped us, all of us, collectively, to accomplish his mission in the world of preaching the gospel until the whole world hears and of making disciples of every nation. We want to be careful. We want to be prudent. We don't want to push too far, too fast. But we should never wonder, do we have what it takes to do what God's given us as a mission? Because in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need. Every resource that's needed to accomplish the mission is bound up in this room, in this body, in this church, in God's people. Because we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And we've been called to the work of making disciples, of being witnesses to the world. Father, we pray that you'd help us to keep understanding. Lord, as the days draw to a conclusion, as we get closer to the end of days, to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. The response of an unbelieving world will get more intense. And we must be ready for that. We must be ready to be, to be attacked, to meet hostility, to be faced with difficulty and trial and trouble, and perhaps even to lose our lives on account of our faith. But I also pray, God, that as we come to grips with those things, that we would recognize that we still have work to do. We are your witnesses. So may we take what we've learned and received and heard and seen and put it into practice and proclaim it to the world. So that when the end of days come, it might be said of us as it is in verse 7 of these witnesses, that their testimony was fulfilled. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.